Tonight, I want to speak to you about the purity of the church, specifically what it is that Christ uh, call, what is Christ's call to his church about a particular group of people, and that is those who have presented themselves as believers and yet essentially live double lives or have come to a place to ignore or refuse spiritual authority in their lives. What do we, what do, we do with them? The Lord Jesus is forgiving. He's kind. He's gracious. He saved all who would come to him by faith out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. But just as he's called the individual believer to be set apart, to be different from the world, so also he has called individual local churches to live differently, to be set apart. We possess the Holy Spirit. We possess changed hearts, changed minds, changed affections, changed priorities. And so what we're talking about tonight is biblical church discipline. I know it's a sobering topic, but don't make the mistake of thinking that it's a negative topic. It's not a negative topic. It's for the good of the church. It is for the glory of God. And the glory of God is always a good thing. In his book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, familiar to many of you, Dr. Mark Dever, he lists church discipline as mark number seven of a healthy church. And he gives five reasons a church should practice church discipline. They're all based in scriptures that we'll look at shortly. Here is five reasons. One, for the good of the person disciplined. For the good of the person disciplined is to drive them to repentance. This is not an act of vindictive vengeance. It's discipline as you would discipline a child for their hope for good. Second reason he lists is for the good of other Christians as they see the danger of sin. Wherever there's serious, unrepentant sin, our consciences can become seared and we can become used to that. And we can become like the church at Thyatira that looked at a woman like Jezebel that looked at the sexual sin that was becoming normal in the church and say, that's not that bad. Grace covers everything. It is true that grace covers everything judicially before the throne of God, but it is not true that grace covers our desire to just sin indiscriminately without any thought of restraint at all. That is not what grace is about. And so it's for the good of other Christians to see the danger of sin. And it is very much a gracious warning of what real judgment will look like. Third reason that Dever lists, for the health of the church as a whole. And I think this is a good illustration Church discipline is like medicine. It needs to be taken occasionally to get the body back to health so that it can go about its normal functions. Fourth reason he gives is for the corporate witness of the church. For the corporate witness of the church, this is so important. When when churches are seen as no different than the world, then the witness of a life-changing gospel is destroyed. It's gone. In other words, when unbelievers have no more questions for us, then we've become useless in the world. When they have no questions about why are you different than me why are you different than my neighbor when we take that away by being the same as them being the same as their neighbor then they have no reason to pursue the gospel at all the most important reason though that Dever lists and I agree with his assessment that this is the primary reason for biblical church discipline it is for the glory of God as we reflect his holiness it is for his glory we've been instructed to be holy because God is holy The church in Thyatira tolerated immorality and Jesus issued a strong rebuke, including that he would be striking dead those who supported unrestrained sexual immorality. He is serious about sin in his own bride, the church. 
Just in case you think this might be a recent idea, let me read to you from the Reformed Belgic Confession of 1561. Quote, the marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God. Well, I want to look broadly at three different themes to help us understand the seriousness of Christ's call to purity in the church, the seriousness of sin, the call to the local church to defend the honor of Christ. Here are the three themes. We're going to look at biblical repentance, biblical discernment, and biblical instruction. So repentance, discernment, and instruction. We're going to go through a lot of scripture tonight. I don't have time to have you turn to each one. I would, I would ask you to consider making some notes. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at biblical repentance. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, What did repentance look like? And the answer to this is also the answer to the question, what does biblical repentance look like for a believer who's been engaging in visible, observable sin, which has consequences for himself and for others? What does that repentance look like? Well, in the New Testament, the main word for repent simply means to change your mind about something. And if we put it this way, to change your allegiance, to hate your sin and love Christ. The Old Testament major word used for repent means to turn from something. And so these two go very well together. I've changed my mind, changed my heart about my sin, and so I turn from that sin to Christ. So I want to examine some passages briefly just to get a flavor for what biblical repentance is. And I'll give you a hint. It's not just saying I'm sorry. That's not what it is. I want to give you six examples of biblical repentance. First example we might call the daily sins of life the daily sins of life. And Jesus teaches this in Luke seventeen three and 4. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, this is teaching not so much about the person who needs to repent. That is not the emphasis here. The emphasis here is on the person who needs to forgive. And so that's why the I repent, that little short phrase, there's no emphasis there. The emphasis here is on the person who has a responsibility to forgive. But there's an assumption here. The assumption is is that repentance is genuine, that it's real. Now, the text here doesn't give the criteria for genuine repentance. Sounding like you mean it isn't genuine repentance. You can't know someone's heart. And so what Jesus is saying here is that when someone says, I repent, you take them at their word, that it's true. But it's not meant as a one-stop theology for all of what repentance is. If that was the only text we ever used to teach repentance, we would be teaching a very cheap repentance. All you have to do is tell God, sorry. It doesn't give us details also as to whether or not there are natural consequences involved with this repentance. The guy who comes to him seven times in a day, we don't know if that's just because he said an unkind word to his fellow or if he stole something from him. If he stole something from him, there's restitution that must be made. This is more instruction about the gracious, soft heart of the offended person. So that gives us a clue as to how easily we ought to forgive, but it doesn't give us a whole lot of information about repentance. Another example David in Psalm 51. David in Psalm 51, you don't have to turn there. I'll read some of the passage to you. This is his repentant confession after committing murder and adultery. 
after murdering uh, uh, Uriah and taking his wife Bathsheba in adultery. First of all, he had need of mercy. He had need of mercy. He recognized this. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He needed to be transparent. He needed to be honest. He needed to be real. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. His focus is on all that he had done. He's not trying to sweep any of it under the rug. He's not saying, well, you don't understand. My other wives just weren't very understanding, so I need to take Bathsheba. You don't understand. Uriah wasn't a really a nice guy, so I had him killed. There's no uh, excuses. There's no rationalization. My sin is ever before me. I'm staring at it. I'm looking at it dead in the eye. Transparency. He needed to acknowledge that the most offended party is God. The most offended party is God. In verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He even needed to acknowledge that he was acting according to his nature. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is basically saying, I'm the worst of the worst of the worst, and I've just simply acted according to who I am. But he also needed to joyfully receive the discipline of the Lord. He says in verse 8, Let me hear with gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That God has broken him. God has disciplined him. And he says, but I need to rejoice in that. I need to be glad for that. And then finally, he needs to recommit to a holy life worthy of imitating He says at the end of the psalm, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. What's the implication? I will teach transgressors your ways by being transparent about how sinful I have been. That's David. Let me give you another example of biblical repentance. A little guy named Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. In Jericho, he was the chief tax collector. He was the man who had the habit of defrauding his fellow Jews In employment by Rome, Zacchaeus, a small man who wanted to see Jesus. And he is famous for climbing the sycamore tree. You've even sung songs about him in Sunday school. He wanted to see Jesus, and Jesus called to him to come down. Jesus invited himself to the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, because Jesus knew the heart of the man. He knew what he was about to do. And Luke 19 tells us that when Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, Quote, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, what kind of tax collector who's considered right up there with prostitutes and thieves, what kind of tax collector receives the Son of God joyfully? Well, let's find out. Luke 19, verse 8 says that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, and this is still in front of everybody who's watching, now, whatever Zacchaeus is about to say is important because he didn't wait until they were reclined at the dinner table. He didn't wait until they were on their third course and eating some bread and drinking some wine and say, by the way, Jesus, I wanted to tell you something. He stood up right before him to make a formal announcement. And here's his announcement. He says, behold, Lord, and he addresses Jesus as Kurios, the Lord God, the half of my goods I give to the poor, And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, this is phenomenal repentance. Now, I want to make four observations about his repentance here. First of all, Zacchaeus did this publicly. He did it outside in the very crowd 
of all the people that he regularly stole from at tax time. In the previous verse, the crowds around Jesus had seen that Jesus was going to be with Zacchaeus, and it says that the crowd grumbled. Literally, in in Greek, they murmured. They gossiped. They didn't like this guy. Really? Jesus is eating dinner with this guy? He did it publicly. Second observation, because so much of his great wealth was ill-gotten gain, Zacchaeus immediately pledged to give half of his fortune to all the poor there in Jericho. And this is going to become important in a moment. He gave half of it. Well, why didn't he give all of it? Well, because he had things to do. Here's the third observation. He didn't want to just obey the law out of love for the Lord. He wanted to obey the law out of love for the Lord in a spirit of true repentance in a way that everyone around him would know that his repentance was genuine. Did you catch that? He wanted to obey in a way that everyone around him would know his repentance was genuine. Listen, Leviticus 6 verse 5, Numbers 5 verse 7 required that in this situation, you had to return what was stolen plus a 20% fee, a 20% penalty. Zacchaeus was pledging a 300% penalty. In other words, if he had defrauded someone $100, the law required that he paid back 120. He's pledging to pay back 400 to everyone. And notice he says, if I have defrauded someone, this is not Zacchaeus leaving himself and out. It's not that lame apology of if I have done anything wrong, I apologize. That's not an apology. This is the assertion that he's defrauded so many people that he's going to have to go back and check his records. It's going to take time. He's going to have to look through his books and he's going to have to check and see, oh yeah, overcharged him, overcharged him, overcharged her, overcharged her. It's going to take time, effort, and great labor to clean up this mess. And the fourth observation, he uses a present active indicative verb. It means I give to the poor. And what this means is I restore it fourfold. It's not just a promise. It means it's something he's doing right now at this moment. Very possibly in anticipation and in hope of repenting in person to the Lord Jesus, he's already been repenting. He's already been going through the books. He's already been beginning to make things right. Listen, Jesus demanded of the rich young ruler to give all his possessions to the poor because the rich young ruler had a lust for money and Jesus told him to get rid of it and he wouldn't do it. So Zacchaeus got rid of half of his wealth by giving it to the poor so that he could take the other half to finish paying back all the people that he had defrauded. What was Zacchaeus doing? He was rendering himself a poor man because his idol was money and he got rid of it all. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus said in Luke 19, today salvation has come to this house. Judicially in the courts of heaven, Zacchaeus has been justified, not because he did good works, but because his repentance was real and it was verifiable. And although he was justified, the consequences of his sin would continue. His repentance would likely take a number of months to go through his records and find everyone he had defrauded, repenting individually to each person he had stolen from. That's repentance. I'll give you another example of biblical repentance. The sinful woman of Luke 7. The sinful woman of Luke 7. I won't spend a lot of time on her. We studied her in detail last Lord's Day. She is a prostitute or a sexually immoral woman who is standing behind Jesus at a dinner that Jesus was invited to with the self-righteous Pharisee named Simon. 
And this woman was overcome with grief at her own sin and gladness at the forgiveness that was available to her by Christ. And she wept and she accidentally got Jesus' feet wet with her tears. And so she bends down to wipe his feet with her tears and anointing Jesus' feet with precious, expensive ointment, ointment that she probably earned with her sexual immorality. And we saw last week that her repentance was humiliating. It was public. It was emotional. and It was costly. It was all out repentance. Another example. How about another repentant tax collector? Another repentant tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, we see the contrast of the fake believer and the repentant believer. Jesus told a parable, quote, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Luke 18, 9. They told of two men who fulfilled a common practice. They went to the temple to pray, to pray aloud, to pray publicly, to pray at the place where they could meet with God. One was a Pharisee who prayed proudly, telling God how wonderful he was. He gave an assertion, essentially, I am right with God. I'm so glad that I'm not like all these other rotten people. The other one, the tax collector, He stood far away in shame and he couldn't lift his eyes to heaven as was the custom in prayer. In other words, he couldn't make eye contact with God. And he beat his chest in agony over his own sin and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, he's asserting, I am not right with God and I need mercy. And Jesus made the point that the tax collector went to his house justified. He was forgiven. The tax collector's attitude was that of being humiliated before the Lord, mortified at his own sin. There's some reason to believe, by the way, that this parable had basis in a true story about a tax collector named Levi that we know as Matthew. Let me give you one more example of biblical repentance. Saul the Pharisee, the persecutor of the church, the enforcer of the Sanhedrin council, on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, He's confronted by the Lord Jesus himself. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul, who would become Paul, which just means little, the tiny one. He was blinded and he had to be led by the hand to Damascus. And for the next three days, a blinded Saul didn't eat, he didn't drink, and he fasted in the darkness because he was stunned that he had been persecuting God himself, ironically, out of a zeal for God. And now this man who would be chosen by God as an apostle, the last chosen apostle, the instrument of God to carry the gospel, as Acts 19 says, to Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel, he never forgot his past. And listen to this contrast. The apostle Paul is the one who wrote Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But does that mean he forgot all about his own sin? No, it doesn't mean that. Because the same guy who wrote that inspired text also wrote this inspired text of 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He wrote in Galatians 1, 13, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He never forgot his sin and he never let anyone else forget it either. And yet, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Judicially, he is made pure, he is made holy, he is made righteous before God, but he never forgot where he came from. His repentance was massive, it was verifiable, and his life was completely different. 
Do you understand that biblical repentance is more than just saying sorry about that? Do you understand that it means changing your ways? Do you understand that it means making things right with those that you have hurt? It is verifiable and it is sometimes difficult. Now, does that mean that a person cannot come to faith in Christ instantaneously? Of course not. You can come to faith in Christ in one moment. You can ask to be forgiven of your sin and you can repent in your heart at that moment, horrified and mortified at your own sin. But it might be that the consequences for that sin continue on. There's a second theme to help us understand the seriousness of sin and the call to the church to defend the honor of Christ. Biblical discernment. Biblical discernment. I think it's important to establish, first of all, that the discipline of the Lord is seen in the New Testament as a good thing. This is a good thing. It's, it's proof of your salvation to a certain degree. Hebrews 12, verse 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he who, what loves, right? And he chastises every son whom he receives. This discipline most often happens in real relationships within the body of Christ, the husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, the elder-member relationship, the member-to-member relationship. You don't have to worry that every time you get a cold that the Lord might be disciplining you for something and you're playing discipline roulette trying to figure out what thing he's nailing you for this time. If you're convicted of sin, confess it. But generally, his discipline takes place in the context of relationships. Matthew 18 tells us that if your brother offends, you go to him. But here's where discernment comes in. What's the criteria to discern between 1 Peter 4, 8, which says love covers a multitude of sins, and 1 Corinthians 5, which says deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. How do you discern between that, that spectrum, love covers a multitude of sins, all the way to deliver somebody to Satan? Well, obviously, 1 Peter 4, 8 is our default. If love doesn't cover a multitude of sins, then our relationship with Christ is radically changed. Does he discipline you for every single sin you commit? No. He's gracious. He's kind. If we spend our lives in paranoia, constantly confronting each other about everything, we create a a church atmosphere that's forgotten the gospel. And so how do you discern that something is serious enough that we go to the lengths, every length possible to produce repentance. Well, we're going to see the biblical data in a moment, so I'm just going to summarize it right now. I'm going to summarize what the New Testament says about when you take every measure against sin. And I'll just give you three criteria. First of all, it is observable sin. It is observable sin. There must be an outward manifestation. It must be seen with the eyes, heard with the ears. You can't confront something in a real hard and fast way that's unobservable. You, you can't say, I'm confronting you about pride. Uh, how do you know that somebody's proud? Now, if they say, I'm the best person God ever made, now you can confront them about pride because there's a visible outward manifestation. You confront the heart condition based on the outward manifestation. The Lord knows we can't see each other's hearts, so he doesn't give us the responsibility to confront heart condition. We, we can't do that. We can, we can try, but we don't have full knowledge. In fact, our default position in regard to someone's heart is to be, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things. Just believe the best. Believe that their heart is in the right place. And real heart problems will eventually become observable. Mark 7, 21, I read this morning, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. And so it needs to be observable. 
Here's another criteria to help us be discerning. It needs to be not only observable sin, it needs to be serious sin. Now, that's not to say that all sin is not serious. Any sin is enough to condemn you to hell for all eternity, if not under the blood of Christ. But by serious sin, what we mean is sin that has continuing and major consequences for you and for others. Has continuing and major consequences for you and for others. Many of these serious sins are listed in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, and we'll get to those in a moment. But they can also simply include refusal to honor authority, to refusal to honor authority in marriage, honor authority in the church, other God-given authority. Serious sin can also include sin that's so ingrained and so habitual that, that that person has become blinded to the gravity of it and continues to be repeated with more and more excuses, more and more rationalizations. Now, serious sin does not include preference issues. It doesn't include personality issues. Some people are just a little more abrupt than other people, right? That doesn't make them sinners more than you. It just means that they're made a little bit differently. It needs to be observable. It needs to be serious. Serious sin is sin in which if you don't move away from it, serious damage and consequences are going to be caused. It will lead to destruction And the third criterion we might identify, observable sin, serious sin, this is the most important one, unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin. Now, the reason I've defined biblical repentance already is so that we can't use the out of saying, well, I said I was sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is changing your mind, changing your heart, changing your ways, changing your direction, turning. With unrepentant sin, there's a rebellious attitude of refusal to let go of that sin. There's a pattern of self-justification, of excuses, of rationalizations, of, well, if you only understood, of giving mitigating circumstances. This sin had to happen because you don't understand how hard I have it. A pattern of loving the sin is apparent more than loving Christ. Now, this is not sinless perfection. We're not perfectionists. Hebrews 12 speaks of the sin which so easily besets you that the struggle in your life that are your biggest ones, your biggest weaknesses, the ones that you're constantly having to deal with, constantly having to repent of. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about rebellion against the very idea that you need to repent. Well, I said I was sorry. Minimizing the sin, minimizing repentance. It often manifests itself in rebellion against those confronting the person and ultimately against the authority of other church members. You have authority over one another to confront sin and over the authority of the leadership of the church to confront sin. And then the problem becomes, and I've seen this so many times, I even predict it in counseling. I say, if this goes badly, here's what you're going to say. It becomes, well, you don't know what you're talking about. This is none of your business. My family life, my business life is not your concern. Listen, unrepentant sin in any and every area of your life is our business. We call it shepherding. In any area of life that Scripture addresses, which is all of them, the church members and the church leaders have authority in your life to call you to Scripture's standard. They have authority. You have authority over me. Though I am your shepherd, you have authority to say to me, I don't like the way I see you speaking to your wife. I don't like the way I see you doing this or this. Have you thought about repenting of that? Have you thought about a different direction? You have that authority. So understanding the difference between love covers a multitude of sins and turn this one over to Satan, it takes discernment, takes wisdom. If 
everything is love covers a multitude of sins, then we've become antinomian. We've issued free grace with no standards of holiness, no obedience, and now you have chaos in the church. And on the other side, if everything becomes a confrontable big deal, then we've created an atmosphere of paranoia and we've forgotten the spirit of the gospel, which says that I can say to my wife, I repent seven times in one day, and she can say, I forgive you seven times in one day. That we can have the spirit of the woman who was celebrating her 50th wedding anniversary and somebody asked her, what's the secret to your happy marriage? And she said, that's easy. Before we got married, I made a list of 10 unforgivable sins. And every time he sinned against me, I just said to myself, it's a good thing that wasn't one of the 10. A continued forgiving spirit. We can do that. So we have to have discernment. Let me give you a third theme now, and that is biblical instruction. Now we're done introducing the topic. Let's get to Scripture. You may think that church discipline and restoration is addressed only in Matthew 18, and some of you who are maybe newer to the faith might not even know that. I want to explode that myth tonight. I can't do a detailed exegesis of every one of those texts, but I want to give you a big picture of the New Testament's teaching on the topic, kind of a a big tent overview here. But we will start with Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. You don't have to turn there if you don't wish to. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. and Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's the primary lesson of that text? I think if we're going to boil it down, the primary lesson of that text is that the church has the authority to discipline wayward believers. We have that authority. As a matter of fact, this is, this is unprecedented. Jesus says here, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. The context is when the church decides that somebody needs to be turned over to the world, turned over to Satan, heaven agrees with that decision and will back you. I have been a part of two different church discipline situations in which the person involved was either my age or younger. Both of those people are dead now. Died of unnatural causes. That strikes fear into my heart because apparently heaven agreed with those decisions. In this particular case, in Matthew 18, this begins as something between two believers. The first step is you address this person in private. Now, the good news is is that everybody has been through Matthew 18, step one. All of you have. It's good and it's a major way we are sanctified. Step one might happen once, it might happen a hundred times, it might happen a thousand times. You might decide at the end of step one, love covers a multitude of sins. I said my piece, that's it. But if that sin pattern continues and it has destructive, damaging impact on you or on others, then you continue. The second step, if you're not getting anywhere and it's not an issue that you feel can be covered by love covers a multitude of sins, which should be most of them, then you take a witness or two. And this isn't just a a witness who knows the behavior of this person. That might not be possible. It's mostly a witness to your godly behavior and to how that person's going to respond. 
I don't know about you, but when one person tells me I don't like something you did, that's one thing. When one person comes and says, I'm going to sit these two people down to listen to our conversation, that adds a whole new level of sobriety to it, doesn't it? Then there's a third step. You tell it to the church. This is for a specific purpose. This is a a, a godly, merciful purpose. It's to ask the church to call that person to repentance. And you'll notice in Matthew 18 that the method by which step three happens is not specified. It might be done simply by the original uh, offended party letting his or her circle of friends know about the issue and ask for help in calling the sinner to repent. Or it can be more official in which someone calls the elders of the church to announce to the whole church body. Timing of every step is a judgment call. It often depends on what would happen should too much time elapse. Takes great discernment, great judgment. But then Jesus gives a fourth step. The church is informed that this person is to be treated as an unbeliever, as a tax collector. This isn't a shunning. This isn't a complete breaking of the relationship in this particular case. But what it is, is a breaking of Christian fellowship. It's a breaking of Christian fellowship. And there is at that point a duty to not continue as if things had happened, as if nothing had happened. That when you meet that person outside the context of the church, you don't say, hey, how are you doing? It's good to see you. You say, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. When are you going to repent? When are you going to do it? Please come back to the Lord. And so in the case of Matthew 18, this is a four-step process. But here's where I want to continue on because the question is, is it always? Is church discipline always a four-step process? Second text we would consider, and again, don't turn there. We don't have time. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing the situation. It's something we can't even hardly fathom that a member of the church was in an immoral sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, what is Paul's admonition? In verse 2, quote, let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 9, purge the evil person from among you. How many steps is that? One. Paul uses this occasion then to remind them that anyone, and this is why it's so important, that anyone who has called himself a brother Anyone who has ostensibly been baptized and declared, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet has continued to live a double life, Paul says in verse 2, verse 5, verse 9, verse 11, do not associate with that person. And he clarifies, he's not talking about unbelievers who have not professed Christ. We expect them to act that way. He's talking about those who have publicly presented themselves as believers. And then he gives what I call the big list. Here's the big list. Those who are sexually immoral. This is unrepentant indulgence of sexual desires outside the context of marriage. The greedy, someone obsessed with money at all costs, and that is manifested in an observable way. Swindlers, this is a a con man, a thief, someone who lies all the time, someone who steals all the time. You serve the God of truth, why do you keep lying? He includes idolaters, someone who's trying to play both sides of the fence. He includes revilers. A reviler is a habitual abuser of others who sees everyone else as less than themselves and says so and makes sure to make sure that everyone knows that. Drunkards, those who willfully indulge in drunkenness without repentance, willful, unrepentant drug use would certainly be in there as well. 
And then he adds to this big list in chapter 6, people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He adds adulterers, specifically sexual sin outside the confines of marriage, people who practice homosexuality, and he adds thieves. Now the question is, how come in Matthew 18 you get four steps and sometimes it's slow? And my wife has taken me to step one 200,000 times. And we just keep doing that. And in 1 Corinthians 5, it's decisive, it's fast, it's quick, it's speedy, it's now. Why is that? Well, first of all, the church had apparently been boasting. The Corinthian church had been boasting about how accepting and how open-armed and how seeker-friendly they were. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, a little tolerated sin will dirty everyone. But the second reason, he says in verse 1, he says, this is behavior, quote, of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. And you get rid of it immediately because we're to be different. We're to be set apart. We're to be sanctified. We're to be holy. We're to be completely representing Christ. And a person like that left in the church says the church is no different than the whorehouse down the street. It's no different. And so speed is of the essence. Here's a third passage that deals with church discipline, 2 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7. Paul is now revisiting a church discipline situation, probably the same one addressed in 1 Corinthians 5 that we just talked about. And here in 2 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7, he talks about what do you do if that person repents? This is important for us. We gotta get this other side of the coin. Paul gives this instruction. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. But I want you to know this here. The punishment is given. It says by the majority, the church. This isn't a matter of just some mean elders turning somebody away at the front door. What do you do when somebody who has been named to the entire church repents and you see them come again? You should... Embrace them and weep with them and, and praise God for them and, and, and be with them and help them and love them. Why? Because to do any less is to mock the salvation that God gave to you because that's what he did for you. And Paul tells us what we should hope to be able to do in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 2. He says, so I hope or I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. There is never a point with one exception, which I will show you in a moment, there's never a point where you say to somebody, I did love you once, but I never will love you again. That doesn't ever exist. Let me give you a fourth church discipline passage, Galatians 6, verse 1. Galatians 6, verse 1. Paul describes the beginning of this process and what the eventual hope, the eventual aim is. He says in this verse, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, what are you doing at the beginning? At the beginning, you're saying to someone, Why are you doing this? Remember Christ? Remember the cross? Remember how he's forgiven you? Remember how he's changed you? Why are you acting like the world? Come back to the cross. Come back to Christ. Come back to your people. And there's gentleness. But this is the beginning stage. We're to be responsible for one another when we see sin that is observable, that is serious, but hopefully will be repented of. Here's a fifth church discipline passage, Ephesians 5, verse 11. 
Ephesians 5, verse 11. What is the church's attitude toward wickedness? Is it to cover it up? Is it to hope it just goes away on its own? No. Ephesians 5, 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It's a word that means to confront them, to reprove them, to bring them out into the light. Remember, this is observable, serious sin. Generally, the norm is love covers a multitude of sins. But when something is clearly in that category, we expose it. Now, this is not promoting your own preferences in gray areas. There is no thou shalt not uh, send your children to bad schools. There is no thou shalt not wear a certain color of clothing. We're not going preferences here. This is observable, listed scriptural sin. But neither do we hide sin. We don't hide it. Because if we do, as a church body, we will receive the rebuke that the church of Thyatira received from the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a sixth church discipline passage, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Very briefly, Paul has this kind of bullet point list of what we do with the difficult people in the church, which basically is everyone. We're just in different categories. But he tells us in this bullet point list, admonish the idol. Literally, the disorderly, the insubordinate, the people who just can't get with the flow, the people who think that they're special, who think that elder authority doesn't mean anything for them, think that scriptural authority doesn't mean anything for them. And he says, admonish them, correct them, redirect them. I've been in the ministry for two decades now, and I can recognize the idol. I know the signs. They don't join the church. They don't form meaningful relationships and they often stay aloof and they often have uh, a lot of opinions about what the church ought to do. They are the idol. Here's a seventh passage on church discipline. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15. This is a long section in which the Apostle Paul says, quote, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. Same word as in 1 Thessalonians 5. And not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us, the word of God that you receive from us. Who is this? This is the troublemaker. This is the one who's out of step doctrinally and trying to sway others to be out of step doctrinally. Look, I don't care if you have horrible doctrine. I do care when you try to make others have horrible doctrine. Now we have an issue. This is also a person who's spending too much time on making trouble and instead, Paul says, they ought to be about the business of life. They ought to work hard. They ought to stay busy, work with their hands. Paul's command which is a good summary of how to treat the rebellious professing believer. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, kind of a condensed summary here. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. What does that translate to? Step three of Matthew 18. You get to step four, now you don't treat him as a brother anymore. Here's an eighth passage on church discipline, 1 Timothy 1.20. 1 Timothy 1.20, beginning back in verse 19, rather. Holding faith in the good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, I want you to notice what's missing here. Four steps, confidentiality, extensive, lengthy counseling sessions. These are men who are troublemakers and Paul has said they're out. They're out. Here's a ninth passage on church discipline that instructs us. 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. 
1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20, Paul tells Timothy, who is the apostolic representative of Paul, how the church is to handle someone when an accusation is brought against an elder, an accusation of something observable, serious, and potentially unrepentant. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is a protection that one person can't take your pastor down. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them, meaning those elders, as those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. There is the implication of a surprise here. To create an atmosphere of fear, don't call yourself an elder if you're going to behave this way. And Paul is about to give a list here in 2 Timothy and he gives a list in, uh, rather in 2 Timothy 3. This is our 10th one. 2 Timothy 3, Paul gives a list of what false believers can look like. And I want you to listen to the list, but listen hard for the last phrase. Listen hard for this. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. This is our 10th passage. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Here's the list. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here's the last phrase. Having the appearance of godliness. Whoa. All of those things are hidden. They're under the surface. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And what does Paul say? Avoid such people. What about those same people who act that way and they're unbelievers and they know it? What do you do with them? You share the gospel with them. Take them out to eat. Befriend them. Have them in your home. But the person who has been baptized and who receives the Lord's table and who publicly has said, I follow Christ, and yet is discovered to have this secret life, avoid them. There's an 11th passage on church discipline, Titus 3, 9 through 11. Titus 3, 9 through 11, Paul gives Titus instructions in what to do with someone who is defiant and a troublemaker in the church. Titus 3, beginning in verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. By the way, Paul is speaking to church leaders here. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Pastor Darren and I have a mutual friend who at times goes into churches as an interim pastor, especially if there has been trouble and they're without a pastor, and he goes in to kind of help clean things up. He went to one church where the teacher of the largest Sunday school class in the whole church had been stirring up trouble and swaying people so much that his class was being attended by people who would go to his Sunday school class but would refuse to go to church, and he was encouraging that. Well, little did that Sunday school teacher know that our friend had done his doctoral dissertation on the book of Titus. And he showed up to the Sunday school class as the interim pastor, and he found that teacher who was leading his own following, called him up to the front, and he said, good morning, you're fired, goodbye, leave. Why? Because he had been warned once and he continued to do it and he said, bye, get off the campus. Correctly, according to Titus 3. There's a 12th passage we might consider, Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17, the author of Hebrews here gives admonition on how to be a useful, how to be a joyful church member. 
Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Listen, I've been in elder meetings where we're discussing how the shepherd, a member who's continuing to be wayward, continuing to be challenging and rebellious and have literally heard the groans of sorrow in these discussions. I've seen your elders weeping over the sheer emotional and spiritual exhaustion of confronting the wayward with no sign of repentance. It is an agonizing thing to do. There's a 13th passage we might consider, 2 John verse 10. 2 John verse 10. What do you do with someone who wants to bring new teaching into the local church? Perhaps a member who wants to challenge the good theology of the church. 2 John verse 10 says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. That's harsh. With false teachers, you don't make a pretend show of friendship. How can you have a relationship with somebody who is preaching heresy? If Joel Osteen shows up to the door and says, I'd like to come to your house for dinner, what do you say? Not on my watch. Preach the gospel and then we'll be friends. Here's another one, another one, Jude verse 23. Jude verse 23. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us how we ought to look out for one another, how serious sin ought to be to us. Jude verse 23 says that we save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That's a standard. That's holiness. Now, I want to put together the seriousness of the consequences of observable, serious, and unrepentant sin. And I just want to read to you most, I don't have time to do all, but most of the commands that have been given to us. Matthew 18, verse 17. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 1 Corinthians 5, 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Deliver this man to Satan. What does that mean, by the way? It means that the church collectively says, there is nothing else we can do for you. There is nothing else that God will do for you. We're going to give you to Satan. And maybe... The Lord will be gracious. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 11. Do not associate. Do not associate. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Keep away from this brother. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. Keep away from this brother. 1 Timothy 1, 20. Hand it over to Satan. 1 Timothy 5, 20. Rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. 2 Timothy 3, 5. Avoid such people. Titus 3, verse 10. In this case, probably a heretic. Have nothing more to do with them. Do you see when we put this all together that the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for the purity of his church? Now, what do we do with ourselves who we sin every day and we repent and we repent? We do that all day long. We come to the cross and we rejoice in the forgiveness that continues to flow from the cross. We take the Lord's table thankful for the fact that we are cleansed We are thankful that we have a mediator who continues to name our name before the Father as one of his. But for those who would say, I will commit observable sin, I will commit serious sin, and I will not be sorry, we do something different. There's two practical questions I get very often. I want to answer these questions. First one, what if this person is my spouse or my child or my parent? What what do I do? Those are very strong bonds. 
And it's a decision that you have to make before the Lord. The Lord gives us the option in 1 Corinthians 7 to remain with unbelievers, to remain in relationship with them who are in our family. I would never ask, we would never ask a a wife or a husband to reject their spouse on the basis of church discipline. In fact, that believing spouse or that believing parent, that believing child might be that person's best hope. But here's the big question. Are you, as the believing family member, doing anything to hinder repentance? Are you enabling that person to continue in their sin? Are you supporting them in that continuance of sin? That is not okay. That's not okay. Any more than you would give a drug addict cash. You just don't do that. Second question I get often. What about the case oftentimes that the church, that the disciplined member simply starts attending another church what do you do then boy you're part of the church of ephesus you get kicked out there's no place else to go being turned over to satan means that you are really turned over to satan so what do you do let me ask you this what would you do if you had taken someone into your home they had stolen from you and then moved out to avoid the consequences and was about to move in with one of your friends what would you do you would tell your friend you would warn the friend for me I have a personal policy that when I find out where someone is attending church, I will always provide a warning to that church leadership that this person has unfinished business and is a bad and even dangerous influence in that new congregation. I have been amazed time and time again to see how many times and how many different ways I get to find out where that person is going. It happens over and over again. I've done this a number of times. The response 100% of the time from pastors I have called has always been the same. Thank you because they get it. They know that they just avoided having a time bomb in their own church. Now, if the church doesn't want to deal with it, that's their problem. They stand before the Lord. But what was agreed upon by a godly church has been agreed upon in heaven. And so even if somebody might find a home in another church somewhere, they will not run from God. They will not run for him. They will not defeat the system, so to speak, because the system is harbored all the way in heaven and is agreed upon in heaven. The Greek scholar H.E. Dana, uh, he wrote in the last century, quote, the abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive, but not more than the abandonment of discipline. I read an interesting statistic that before the Civil War in America, statistics showed that in the Southern Baptist Church, every year they excommunicated 2% of their membership. That for every hundred people in the church, two of them were publicly accused of sin and sent packing. And what was the result? You might think, wow, those churches probably didn't grow that fast. In that period in the Southern Baptist Church, it was the greatest period of revival and growth in the history of that organization. Churches were growing at a rate double that of the population growth. Why? Because Christ blesses a pure church. He always has and he always will. It turns out that church discipline is a very evangelistically oriented tool. John MacArthur reported famously that early in his ministry, the daughter of an elder wanted to marry an unbeliever and to use the church building for the wedding. John said, no. And he was met with resistance. He was met with uh, intimidation and with pressure. And he calls this a watershed moment in his own ministry when he confronted this elder with a simple question, whose church is this anyway? And that is the question that we must always ask, whose church is this? This is the bride of Christ. 
And we are called to present the bride of Christ to him pure and unstained. Whose church is it anyway? It is Christ's church. It is his bride. It belongs to him. Our Father, we thank you for this time to look into your word and to understand that your son demands a pure and holy bride. And we have the joy of having been purified at the cross. Because of your great love for us, you have determined that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And that process starts now. And if we would publicly claim the name of Christ, if we would claim the name of Christian and then act as the world in rebellion and thumbing our nose at your holy standards, how shameful that is to heaven, how embarrassing it is to the church and how wrong it is toward Christ who died for that person. And so we would ask you to purify our body. We would ask you to purify each of us individually, us as a local body, so that Christ might be honored, so that God's name might not be dragged through the mud, so that instead we might be the pure bride of Christ, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And for this, we give you honor and thanks. Amen.